Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 114 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today we're talking with Ansel Halliburton about neveragain.tech, that's a website, and appropriate security paranoia. Today's podcast is sponsored by Ruby Receptionists and its smart, charming receptionists who are perfect for small firms. Visit callruby.com slash lawyerist to get a risk-free trial with Ruby. Today's podcast is sponsored by Spotlight Branding, which wants you to know that having a new website designed for your law firm doesn't have to suck. Spotlight Branding prides itself on great communication, meeting deadlines, getting results. Text the word website to 66866 in order to receive a free website appraisal worksheet. Today's podcast is also sponsored by FreshBooks, which is ridiculously easy to use and packed with powerful features. Try it now at freshbooks.com slash lawyerist and enter lawyerist in the how did you hear about us section. So this podcast seems like a good excuse to talk again about some resources for lawyers to check whether or not they ought to be a little bit more paranoid about their own data security. Yeah, we, I think, probably once a quarter or so dedicate a podcast episode to security and privacy and always recommend that people check out our four-step guide to data security that you can find on Lawyerist. Um, But there are lots of other interesting pieces of news and resources for this. There's been kind of an under-the-radar news story in the past week or so that some foreign hackers claim that they have the Apple ID email addresses and passwords for hundreds of thousands or millions of Apple users. Hmm. Apple thinks this is probably not true, but these hackers have said that sometime in the next couple of weeks, they're going to hack all of the accounts that they claim they have. Okay. And at this (laughs) point, it is all just gossip and speculation But the point is that preventing this from being a problem for you only requires that you follow good practices that you should be following anyway. So whether this threat is true or not, the solution for you is to get a password manager, change your Apple password to something big and long and secure that isn't used anywhere else, and set up two-factor authentication. And you should do that on your Apple account, assuming you're an a Mac or iPhone user. So you should I'm gonna, do that So I'm anyway. going to stop you for a second because yeah. uh, what always happens is we get about this far into the presentation yeah. uh, and I watch our audience. We, I can't see an audience right now, obviously, but I watch our audience. Their eyes start glazing over and they go, oh, that all sounds like computer geeky stuff that yep. and overkill and you're paranoid about it. And I know like later in the podcast, we're going to talk about appropriate paranoia, but I think there's a really easy exercise that you can go through to decide how paranoid you ought to be. And there's a website called haveibeenpwned.com. That's pwned spelled P-W-N-E-D. It's like a gamer joke. Don't worry about it. (laughs) But what it translates to is, has my password been compromised? And ordinarily, I would say you should not go around entering your password into strange websites. That's a terrible idea. Well, you don't want to enter your password into this site either. Uh... Well, just just your email address. Oh, is that all it is? Okay. Um, So you put in your email address and it will tell you whether or not uh, a hacker claims to have cracked your password. And I think that's probably a good way for you to go and figure out if you are appropriately paranoid or not. 
Uh, because if you have been pwned, uh, then you know that you're on notice that somebody out there thinks they've got your login credentials and you would want to know that and take appropriate precautions. Yeah, and to be clear, so the this Apple ransom hacker thing that is a little bit in the news at the moment is what is currently an unverified claim. Have I been pwned.com are actual data sets. So these are not about claims of breaches. These are password files that are available on the internet to purchase, which means if your email address shows a breach on that website, that means that whatever password is associated with that account is currently actively available to hackers. I just learned I've been pwned. As most of us have. My uh, my email address is uh, was involved in an October 2013 security breach at Adobe. Um, and what that means is that somebody out there has posted a list of username and passwords, as Aaron just explained, and they claim to have mine. So I actually didn't know that before, so I'm going to go ahead and change that right now. <laughs> well, and, and so, I mean, to be clear about the best practices, again, which you can get for free in our four-step data security guide on the website, is that the Have I Been Pwned website will say when the breach occurred. And so your yep. Adobe crack of your password was 2013. So if using your password manager, you've updated your password since 2013, then according to this website, you're completely safe. I know. I'm going to totally go check that and find out too, because yep. now I'm really curious about that. But the, I mean, the good news is I also know that I use a unique password at Adobe. So even if somebody has got me my credentials for Adobe, they can't really do much other than download a copy of Adobe Photoshop in my name, I guess. Right. And that's the point with this, with this purported Apple hack. Yep. is that some huge portion of the data set they claim to have is going to be people who use that password in other places. Yep. And so they're, they're going to, assuming this is true, they're going to run rampant with people's passwords. The easy solution is change your password now and have it be a different password on every website and you're done. Yeah, and, and you mentioned this up at the top of our discussion, but um, go to our website get our four-step computer security upgrade. It's free. Uh, if you subscribe to our newsletter, we'll send you a coupon code for it because we're going to walk through in greater detail how to do each one of these things. And it's just four quick things you can do in under an hour to drastically increase your tech security. We're going to talk about that uh, on today's show as well, along with some other really interesting stuff. So let's uh, hear my conversation with Ansel about uh, neveragain.tech uh, and security paranoia and how much of it you need to have. Hi, I'm Ansel Halliburton. I'm a lawyer at Cronenberger Rosenfeld, which is a small internet-focused law firm in San Francisco. I'm also a programmer and um, I suppose a few other things. I, I just called you a few minutes ago and uh, the voice that answers the phone is very dramatic. You don't practice internet law, you practice internet law, which sounds very cool. So what is that? Uh, so it's a lot of things. Uh, we have a few different categories of clients at the firm. Um, we have most recently, we've got a lot of business with Amazon sellers, which I had no idea was a thing, but it's actually a pretty big thing. You so, mean like third parties that sell through Amazon? Correct. Yeah. People who have uh, storefronts uh, usually exclusively through Amazon. Hmm. Sometimes they sell a few other places, but the Amazon marketplace is just mind-bogglingly huge. Yeah. Most people who sell online do go through it unless they are big enough that they can have their own shop or small enough that they have a little boutique, I guess. Right. So we see a lot of uh, 
counterfeiting that we help people deal with. We get, we help people deal with um, patent infringement uh, demands and takedowns. I, I help out with a few of those sometimes. Uh, and just all kinds of stuff. It's pretty and, interesting. And that's across the board, not just with Amazon sellers, I assume. Right. Yeah. So uh, how big is the firm? It's six lawyers and uh, a, one senior paralegal, a legal assistant, and a practice manager. So uh, nine of us total. And how, how is the firm set up? Are you are you an associate? Are you a partner? Or where, where are you situated in the hierarchy? Right. So I'm an associate. There are two associates, three partners, and one uh, of, of counsel guy who uh, comes in occasionally. Gotcha. Is this, have you been with this firm your whole career then, or where, how does that work? Uh, no, I've been here about two years. Uh, before that, I had my own practice for about a year. Uh, before that, I was at another small firm in Palo Alto, uh, where I was doing mainly litigation. I do less litigation now, but I still do it. Before that, I went to law school. And before that, uh, among other things, I was a programmer and I worked on a project at Stanford that spun out as a, a legal tech company. And I, I, I have known always that you're a lawyer um, since, since your name first popped up, but you, are, you do a lot of writing um, for various publications, including ours. Uh, you're out and active in the legal hacker community, which is sort of an overlap of lawyers who also know how to do things with computers. Give us a kind of the overview of your various activities and how they maybe play into your law practice. Sure. So I never intended to be a lawyer when I was growing up or even going to college. It's, it had really never crossed my mind until I'd been out of college for a few years. I started programming when I was 10, I think, and have been doing that since. Um, so that's been kind of a big part of my life. And so I came out to California wanting to get into the whole Silicon Valley startup scene and did some of that in college. And afterwards, um, I had a few jobs as a software engineer and helping small companies with databases and IT and that kind of stuff. And eventually I decided I wanted to switch into something where I could do more writing. I've always enjoyed writing in sentences and paragraphs in addition to writing code. Um, and so technology law seemed like a really good place to do that. Uh, so since I had never had any experience with it really at all, I got a job as a legal assistant at a law firm and that was my introduction to the law and, uh, I really liked it. So I kept going. <laughs> so I, I imagine it's easy for people to dismiss, um, anything that you might say about why being a programmer is useful to law practice. And I imagine it's especially useful because uh, of the kind of law you practice. But I am—I'm curious. I'd really like to know, like, when as somebody who is equally comfortable sitting down and coding or sitting down and drafting a contract, how do you think about the the role that your background as a programmer plays in your day-to-day -day work as a lawyer, or does it play any at all? I think it does. I think the background in programming gives you. A different set of tools for thinking about problems and, and just problem solving. Programming teaches you how to break problems down methodically and um, solve those problems uh, methodically and and hopefully elegantly. And so, not when I'm that, doing it. That mindset. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it takes a while to get there. Yeah. <laughs> um, just that mindset is very useful. 
and then there's actually the tools. Uh, it's amazing to be able to not just be stumped, but to actually build something to solve your problem. Uh, and I, I do this in cases. Um, a lot of the litigation that I do is uh, data intensive. So we have large discovery productions, lots of data and kind of native computer formats. Uh, and so I can actually build custom software, small things usually, to help figure out what we have and what, what, what's there. And that's been incredibly helpful. Give us an, an example of that. Because like I know um, when I needed to do uh, privilege logs, for example, um, you can do it manually or you know, I realized I could you know, quickly enter a few commands in a command line and just output a list of all the file names in my folders. And if I org- labeled my folders well, it would also explain why I was withholding them. And that seemed like a really simple hacky way for me to do a privilege log without putting any real time into it. Um, I imagine you're talking about something more than that. So I'm, I'm curious about that. Here's one example. So we were working on a criminal uh, case, a hacking and spam case. And we received, I think, on the order of 10 terabytes of data from the government. And some of the key evidence was Skype chat logs. So we could have hired an expert to do all this stuff for us, but actually just opened them up, um, extracted the chats into kind of plain text files, and then used search tools to just find what was interesting and, and review from there. And we can just build up different kinds of searches. Um, there's this concept called regular expressions, which actually another lawyerist author recently wrote about. And they're extremely powerful. It's not just keyword searches. It's very, very flexible, very nuanced. And so having some background in using those is uh, very powerful for any kind of discovery, but especially when you have just tons of text and you don't know where to to start with yeah, it. Yeah, I've been so I wondered about this because you know imaging a hard drive is something that you just sort of have to spend the money to do to do it forensically properly and all that. Um, but searching it once you have it, um, if you can, if you if you're able to do that, if you're able to just get the hard drive and and not have it held, you know, sort of in trust by a third party, if you can just do that work yourself, you really cut out a lot of expense and probably save a lot of time. Yeah, ex- exactly. I mean, we also had a technical expert in the case who was, <laughs> it was very expensive, very good, but very expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's useful if I can just do that uh, and not have to spend time and and money um, explaining things and getting an expert up to speed when I'm already up to speed. So you also do um, some work uh, with other legal hackers. And we've had some discussions about that on the podcast before, but um, I think it's probably still a small enough uh, movement, if you like, that it's probably worth giving a preview. Like, what does that what does that mean to you? What is legal hacking, and and what is the what is getting together with legal hackers groups all about? Yeah, I think to me, legal hackers are people who have that uh, that kind of problem solving mindset where they're going to apply technology to solve solve their problems in in law practice and so one example is um a piece of software that i use a lot called common form i didn't create it Uh, a friend of mine kyle mitchell in oakland did he's also a lawyer um 
sort of a bird of a feather uh, kind of guy. And it is software for contract drafting. Uh, there's a markup aspect of it, sort of like um, how you would use tags in HTML to tell uh, the computer, well, this is a heading, this is a list, that kind of stuff. So there's some markup. But the more interesting thing about Common Form is that it actually helps you improve the substance of your contract drafting. Um, once you run the software, it'll tell you, oh, you didn't define this term that you're using. Um, you didn't. You don't have this heading that you're referencing somewhere else. Um, and even more sort of interesting things like this is a gobbledygook lawyer, uh, legalese word that you shouldn't use. You should use this instead. Uh, and so Kyle did a lot of work um, putting a lot of the recommendations uh, from Ken Adams' book, Manual of Style for Contract Drafting. He put a lot of those oh, really? recommendations cool. into this system. And so when you run it, you get you get sort of the best practices um, come back at you. Uh, so I'm really it. curious about Common Form because uh, this is the first, I, I feel like I might have heard about it at some point, but um, but I'm looking at the website again now and um, it looks like a just a really useful tool for anybody who ever drafts the same contract more than once. Um, it, it looks like it it provides you with the tools to build your own forms, or you can explore forms that have been made public by other users, and mm-hmm. then you can just enter information, generate your form, and off you go. Is is it really that simple? Uh, yes and no. So there's two parts of it. Um, the one that you see on the website is the web interface, which um, Kyle's been working on uh, pretty extensively the last I don't know, year or so. Um, but before that, he had done a command line version, which is sort of not for civilians, but uh, for, for real techies who are comfortable in Linux, uh, it's, it's very powerful. And so I, I use that more. Um, I So for example, I do a lot of website terms and privacy policies in my practice. Uh, that's one of our kind of bread and butter things that we do. When I came on board here at the firm I'm at now, we had a few templates and a, about a million examples of things that we'd done in the past. So I gathered all those up together and put together one sort of canonical set of templates that were good, uh, that had different uh, conditions for if, if it's a if it's a dating website, put in this clause. If it's not, put in this other clause. Um, things like that. So you basically automated the whole firm's template library. Uh, for for this one little practice area, uh, yes, <laughs> pretty much. That's awesome. So I mean, what it allows me to do is be on the phone with a client for twenty minutes, sort of get the do that initial client intake interview where you figure out what business they're in and what they need. And then I fill in a couple of screenfuls of variables and it common form then assembles the first draft for me, which is often 90% done. I just have to tweak it from there. Now you've said this is not for civilians. Um, if somebody was uh, a little bit uh, tech savvy, is this still not for them or is it the kind of thing where they can probably they're clear enough instructions. They can probably just dive in and start doing it. So instructions is an area we're still working on. The documentation is not in there yet. I think that's, it'll get there eventually. I think it, this is still sort of early stage in development, uh, kind of software. 
it, it's yeah. it's super powerful and you can use it but um <laughs> helps a lot if you know kyle and can have lunch with them every few months like i do <laughs> <laughs> so so how does that work with the other attorneys at your firm i, I gather it's a pretty tech savvy firm um but clearly you you came in um and did all this stuff is it the kind of thing that other people there can use or is it really just your if these cases come in the door they just hand them off to you because you can bang it out pretty quickly yeah so for now it is that they get handed off to me or i kind of run that first draft and then other people can edit from there uh, the way they're used to doing um i would like to get it to the point where everybody can you can do it and i think i think we will get there sounds like the web form is part of that yeah exactly that's very cool i i love tools like that and and um, getting to the point where there are some actual user-friendly tools for document assembly, um, that's, that feels like the holy grail to me. Right. And it, it, it's really so much, it does, it does document assembly, but it's a lot more than that. The, yeah. the, the, the annotations that tell you how to improve your drafting are just really valuable. I mean, if everybody could just read Ken Adams and apply those principles, everything would be so much better about the way we draft contracts. Exactly. <laughs> I, um, I, it's funny because uh, contracts are pretty much the most boring thing on the planet unless you're interested in contracts. And he is more interested in contracts than just about anybody I've ever seen. And um, he's, he, he made them as interesting as I can imagine them being when I've seen him speak. And it's, but it is inspiring to, to think about, hey, what if we could actually read these things? That'd be amazing. Exactly. Yeah. I, I'm big on plain language contract drafting. And so uh, he, he's all about that. So I need to take a couple of minutes to hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, I want to hear about some of the stuff you've been doing more recently that are kind of relevant to current events, but also overlap into this world of legal hacking and technology and programming. This podcast is supported by Ruby Receptionists. As a matter of fact, Ruby answers our phones at Lawyerist, and my firm was a paying Ruby customer before that. Here's what I love about Ruby. When I'm in the middle of something, I hate to be interrupted, so when the phone rings, it annoys me, and that often carries over into the conversation I have after I pick up the phone, which is why I'm better off not answering my own phone. Instead, Ruby answers the phone, and if the person on the other end asks for me, a friendly, cheerful receptionist from Ruby calls me and asks if I want them to put the call through. It's a buffer that gives me a minute to let go of my annoyance and be a better human being during the call. If you want to be a better human being on the phone, give Ruby a try. Go to callruby.com slash lawyerist to sign up, and Ruby will waive the $95 setup fee. If you aren't happy with Ruby for any reason, you can get your money back during your first three weeks. I'm pretty sure you'll stick around, but since there is no risk, you might as well try. Spotlight Branding is an internet marketing company that doesn't suck. Most solo and small firm lawyers have had at least one truly miserable experience with a web designer or internet marketing company. So if the idea of launching a new website for your law firm makes you queasy, they get it. Spotlight Branding prides itself on excellent communication with its clients, being responsive, professional, respectful, and delivering what it tells you it's going to deliver. Spotlight Branding works exclusively with solo and small law firms. Services include law firm website design, email newsletter management, social media marketing, and more, all designed to make your law practice more profitable. And Spotlight Branding is currently offering a free gift to our listeners. Simply text the word WEBSITE to 66866 and receive their free website appraisal worksheet, an easy way to evaluate your web presence, identify what's working, and spot opportunities to improve. 
So you're racing against the clock to wrap up three client projects, prepping for a meeting later in the afternoon, all while trying to tackle a mountain of paperwork. Welcome to modern life as a small firm lawyer. The working world has changed. With the growth of the internet, there's never been more opportunities for the self-employed. To meet this need, FreshBooks is excited to announce the launch of an all-new version of their cloud accounting software. It's been redesigned from the ground up and custom-built for exactly the way you work. Get ready for the simplest way to be more productive, organized, and most importantly, get paid quickly. The all-new FreshBooks is not only ridiculously easy to use, it's also packed full of powerful features. Create and send professional-looking invoices in less than 30 seconds, set up online payments with just a couple of clicks and get paid up to four days faster, see when your client has seen your invoice and put an end to the guessing games. FreshBook is offering a 30-day unrestricted free trial to our listeners. To claim it, just go to freshbooks.com lawyerist and enter lawyerist in the how did you hear about us section. And we're back. So Ansel, you've been involved in a couple of uh, efforts recently that have a lot more to do with current events and how technology should respond to government and surveillance and political changes and things like that. So tell me, uh, how should we start talking about that? What, what do you want to hit on first? Uh, sure. So I guess some background after uh, the election in November, a lot of folks in tech here in the Bay Area were shocked and uh, depressed. Uh, and so some of those people got together um, and formed a group that's called Tech Solidarity now. And it's, it's people f- most primarily from tech companies, uh, some big ones, some small ones, some independent people, handful of lawyers also who do work with those kinds of people. Um, to And it really came together to figure out how uh, to support efforts that are already ongoing, uh, including legal aid organizations who are helping immigrants, um, and also how to sort of push back in a, a constructive way against policies that, that we think are bad. Which, so, I mean, those are two um, different but related things. And mm-hmm. <laughs> well, tell me more about that. So what has there been anything that's actually come out of those efforts so far that we can point to and say, hey, that's what they did? Yeah. So the the first meeting in San Francisco, sort of from that, a, or a, a sorry, an effort called the Never Again Tech Pledge mm-hmm. was created. And so uh, it was spearheaded by a, a handful of people uh, starting off at that first meeting. Um, and what that was about was resisting um, or, or, or applying pressure from the bottom of these tech companies. So employees telling their management and telling the public that they would not uh, work on a Muslim registry or any kind of registry that was based on race, religion, national origin. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, people started writing that up, um, and you know, I had a tiny, tiny hand in it. I just used some of my lawyer persuasive writing skills <laughs> to help polish the text of the pledge, and that was about it. But I think the, the pledge itself was very successful. Uh, about 2,800 uh, technology workers signed it. Um, it was cited in quite a few um uh, articles in the press, New York Times, other places, and really, I think, led to some some policy changes at the top of these tech companies. Hmm. Um, 
And after that, the management started actually saying, yeah, okay, we're not going to help build our registry. We're not going to do that. And they had been quiet until until their employees started speaking up. Yeah, sometimes uh, we think of technology as just a set of um, tools that are not opinionated and uh, they're just sort of neutral. You can use them for good or evil. But but really, there's uh, there are a lot of decisions along the way that, that you can make to decide how those tools get built. I mean, there's, there's no reason why... Um, you know, except for the ease of the troubleshooter that, that if your server needs to log everything that everybody connected to it does, um, or that your website needs to save information about visitors, or that your app needs to be tracking information about them. Uh, and if you just decide not to bake those things in, then those tools aren't available for people who would like to misuse them. And the same goes for just building tools. I mean, there's nothing... There's nothing about a, a Muslim uh, tracking database that is unique to a Muslim tracking database, really. It's just, you, it's it's a tool that um, could be could have been built to to just not enable that sort of functionality. I think, right? Yeah, exactly. And and a lot of people will point out that well, there already is a Muslim registry. It's called Facebook, <laughs> um, and Fair. so you know one thing, and that's that's to an extent that's true. Um, and so it's important that technology companies who, that have become such a big part of everybody's life are thoughtful about how that data can be used. Uh, and I think, you know, we've sparked some discussions on that. I, one of the things that I have liked about the way Apple does privacy, and I, I realize everybody trots out Apple to everything all the time, but... Um, but I like uh, the way they had or have still, I hope, um, sort of a, a customer information triumvirate that has to sign off on any use of customer information. And um, it's not a guarantee, obviously, but it it's an indication that somebody at some stage in the process is actually thinking intelligently about how they manage that information. And part of that is, do we really need to do this? Is this the least intrusive way that we could possibly accomplish this goal? And you know, some people will say Siri is not as good as Google Voice Assistant, and part of the reason is because Apple isn't collecting all the information Google is. And that that shows to me is, is an example of, I don't think that was about, you know, thinking about national security or about um, the privacy of Muslim Americans, but it it's an example of how you can um, be thoughtful about these issues instead of just barging ahead and then worrying about what you've captured later when it's too late. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Facebook's motto, I think, used to be move fast and break things. Well, you know, that that's that can actually be extremely harmful. You can move fast and break people. Yeah. Well, which is, you know, it's sometimes brought up in the context of lawyers um, that that's move fast and break things mentality doesn't work when um, when or or fail faster, right? Fail faster doesn't really work when you, it's your client's right. livelihood or privacy or or, yeah. or or their freedom on the line. Exactly. You don't want to fail fast when people's liberties at stake. Yeah. Uh, mo- move slowly and and don't break things is more the idea. Yep. Speaking of security, which I think we've sort of sideswiped now, um, you've you've written some things about security on our site. You're working on some more, and it's it's really cool, um, informed stuff that I really appreciate. Um, and when we were talking about this podcast, you. Uh, mentioned, uh, or it came out maybe in our discussion that maybe we need to talk about why people need to be more paranoid than they are, but not as paranoid as they worry they might need to be. Yeah. Um, I think it comes down to understanding the threats that are out there and which ones are realistic for you. 
Uh, so and I'm going to, I'm going to stop you and plug your threat model, um, worksheet and the threat model post that you did. Um, because that's what you're, that's what you're referring to right now, right? Is really understanding what, what are you really worried about? Because whenever somebody brings up, you know, you should be doing this, somebody in the, in the audience of lawyers, I says that, well, I don't even care about that. Why do my clients care about that? And the answer is, well, you may or may not, um, have you done a threat model, right? Exactly. Yeah. So a threat model is just a, um, a structured way of thinking through what assets you have. And, and it, when we're talking about computers, it's usually data. Um, and that can be email, it could be client files, uh, whatever. Um, and it, so thinking through what you have, what are the threats to that? So meaning um, hackers could be just a thief breaking into your office and grabbing a hard drive at, you know, off your desk. Um, just a wide range of things. Um, email getting intercepted over the wire. Um, legal process, right? There's all kinds of different different ways, different adversaries and different tools that those adversaries have to get your stuff. So, so. Uh, you, you mentioned hackers. And I think when we start talking about security, most people start thinking about um, somebody in a hoodie is sitting, you know, their face... Uh, their hood illuminated by the glow of their screen um, in a dark room trying to get at their data. Is is that what we mean? Yeah, I'm sure that's how they all do it, right? <laughs> I know that when I uh, feel like um, hacking, I go and do that and then watch, um, you know, sneakers or something. So, <laughs> so they're, they're, hackers is a pretty broad umbrella term, but it, it does include some pretty serious adversaries uh, like state-sponsored hacking groups. If you look at what happened to the Democratic National Committee, John Podesta's email getting hacked, you know, I think the intelligence community had pretty much come to the consensus that that was state-sponsored you know, Russian hacking efforts, basically their their intelligence apparatus going after the Democrats. But I, but my ni- my niche is uh, small town gas station owners. I don't care yes. about that. Do I? <laughs> you, you probably don't care about that. Yeah. Yeah. That that's not in your threat model so much. Now, if you represent um, some politicians, like if you represent your local democratic committee or, you know, if you represent someone who's politically unpopular in your community, um, or if you represent um, a company that's, say, suing a company in China that is partly state-owned, well, you might want to expand your threat model a little bit to include those kinds of those kinds of actors. And and then there's uh, hackers who aren't really targeting specific people, but are just taking advantage of the fact that most of the internet is accessible in one way or another, and they're just sort of looking for opportunities, right? Yeah, absolutely. And there's organized crime groups um, in Eastern Europe um, that just do that. They hack everything. It's it's indiscriminate. They'll and they see what they can get. There's ransomware, right, which um, will lock your files unless you pay them some number of bitcoins or whatever. Which is which is almost certainly a much bigger problem than we realize because nobody wants to talk about it. Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. It's I think it's big. I don't know how big it is, but I think um, there's security people who've assessed that, and it is pretty challenging. Yeah, um, and, and most of these things are—it's pretty easy to 
reduce the risk of threats in general once you know what you're trying to protect against? Yeah, it is. There's uh, some basic things that you can do that will up your defenses by a lot. So one thing is not having garbage passwords that are easy <laughs> to break. Um, using a password manager uh, that takes you as a, a fallible human out of the loop. Just some, some basic security precautions, uh, common sense, you know. And so that, that's the stuff that I, I've been writing about for lawyerists. Yeah. Um, could we could we maybe uh, try to give people um, a takeaway tool here? You You recently challenged me to send you uh, a few PDF and Word documents to see if Microsoft and Adobe's um, uh, built-in encryption schemes would work because I was trying to tell people that, you know, it's it's so easy to use Signal or Telegram uh, that it's it's way easier than forcing a client to come up with their own username and password, which is fraught with difficulties, um, for your practice management software's secure portal. Why not just use Signal um, and send encrypted attachments to email and trade the password over signal or, or even just send the, the documents in signal. But, but I liked my idea of using signal, um, for, uh, brief communications and then sending an email with an encrypted PDF attached to it. Uh, if you need to say anything longer or if you need to send documents and you weren't so sure about that. So let's talk about the results of your experiment. Yeah. So I looked into the PDF and office file formats a little more and they've evolved over time. Um, they used to be absolutely terrible in terms of, uh, their encryption, uh, for, for quote unquote locking documents. Mm -hmm. Um, they've improved a lot. Um, so if you use one of the older file formats, you you can break those documents uh, pretty easily. Um, but even with the new ones, which are actually quite good, uh, if you use a really weak password, uh, it, they're still trivial to break. Like, like I think you sent me one with one of the top 500 most common passwords. We just did that as yep. a fun experiment. And it took you like... 15 uh, seconds. It, yeah, it, it was literally a few seconds. <laughs> and that, that, that included <laughs> the time it took you to tell me that you had cracked it and, and give me my, the, my password back to me. So yeah, it was, it was not hard. Yeah. yeah so, but when I sent you one with like a 16 character randomly generated password that, that was, you you probably could have cracked it, but it would have taken weeks to do right, it. Right. Yeah. It, it, the password strength is really the key here. Um, as long as you have, the up-to-date software and you're using the up-to-date formats and if you use a very strong long complicated password that's truly random not created by you um then it's pretty good you can get um it would take the password cracker that i was using uh, in some instances millions of years to so what's that. so what's the guidance on um if you're going to use encrypted pdfs or um, encrypted Word documents, where, where, which is the version where it gets better? So uh, for Office, um, I think you want to be on Office 2010 or later. Uh, PDFs, um, I don't recall off the top of my head, but I think it's like version 8 or later of the Acrobat software. Um, there's different they have a different numbering scheme for the right. file formats themselves. So that's, it's a little tricky. So if you're on current updated versions, you're probably okay doing yes. that. You are okay doing that 
with if you have the latest software and if you are using a password manager to generate your passwords for you. So uh, so now we've given our concrete tip for people. You can send encrypted uh, email attachments, and if you need to do secure communication with people, um, you can just make sure that you trade the good passwords, the randomly generated passwords, in some other secure way, like face-to-face or using Signal or something like that. Um, yeah. And you mentioned Telegram. I would say don't use Telegram. Really? Say yes. more. Yes. Um, their servers are in Russia. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and there's up uh, there's other sort of known weaknesses, and gotcha. they just generally have very poor policies and communication about how their stuff works and security. Enough said. Okay. Um. So how how can the average lawyer, um, who may have heard us talking about the tech solidarity movement, help? How I I mean, I there's obviously roles to play for people who are savvy and able to code and program. Um, what about the average lawyer who is wants to help but isn't quite sure how or what they can do? Yeah, honestly, just donating to um, uh, groups that are focused on um, immigration and uh, you know areas that are sort of under scrutiny or attack from the administration. That that's really the best way to go. It's really hard to volunteer in a meaningful sense. Um, it just takes so much time and attention away from the organization that you're trying to help. It's often counterproductive. Uh, it's more, it's a lot better often to just give them money so they can hire people who focus on it full time. They already know how to do what they do. Just make yeah. it easier for them to do it. Now uh, there's exceptions to that. And I think with tech solidarity, we're trying to, to give some direct help to organizations around security and helping build some tools that we think might actually help them, uh, move the needle a little bit. Um, but, but I think that's the exception. One of the problems I've always found with, um, the idea of hackathons, um, and, and I don't know if this is more or less of a problem with legal hackathons, but, um, somebody builds sort of an alpha version of a tool, uh, and then, and then nothing ever happens with, they get, they get patted on the head for it. Some people tell them great job, uh, and then they lose interest in it, and it never goes any further. And so it, it feels like the landscape is littered with half-baked results of hackathons. Um, do you have thoughts on how to improve on that <laughs> and how to make that that better, especially when it comes to um, this sort of a thing? Um, it sounds like tech solidarity are a lot of people who aren't interested in in doing that, but it, it feels like there are plenty of people who just dip their toes in and then and then decide the water's too cold and never come back. Yeah, and um, I'm I'm not real big on hackathons. I think they can be good for stimulating new ideas and maybe building proof of concept type type uh, tools. Um, but you're right; a lot of them just get dropped and left on the floor, and people go back to their daily lives, and they don't actually do any good. So it, it, you have to find people to sustain these projects, not just not just spend a couple of days, you know, just spend a weekend on it and walk away. That doesn't, that doesn't actually help. And how do you find those people? I mean, I, I know that there are, there are lots of, there are lots of lawyers who want to lend their talents and, and deep knowledge, um, to help build cool tools and whether it's for their own practice, for their communities, for, um, civic hacking issues or civic issues, um, but aren't really sure how they can do that. What is there? Is there any suggestion, or is it really just mostly, you know, what um, spend your money um, and keep on, you know, being 
being a good lawyer in, in the rest of your time? Uh, yeah. So I think a big part of it is just donate, uh, the organizations do what they do, uh, know what they're doing and just need to hire more people. And so, you know, money helps <laughs> with that. Uh, but and, I, also, and I don't want to, uh, I don't want to push too hard against that because I think, um, if more people probably need to get used to using their money to support, um, the, the things that they say they support. So I don't want right. to, I don't want to push too hard against that because I think you're almost certainly right. But I know a lot of people really want to do more than that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think a really good way to do that is to get involved more directly with, with an organization. You don't necessarily have to be doing anything with technology or with law specifically, just get to know them, understand what they need, uh, more deeply. And then, then you're going to become much more helpful, uh, with your sort of particular focus areas where you can actually make, you know, better recommendations to them and, and help in a bigger way. Yeah. I actually s- know what they need. Yeah. I suppose that's, it's underrated to just, uh, you know, show up and lick envelopes for a while if, if that's what they need. <laughs> and, and as that's you right. do that, you'll get to know the organization better and you may spot opportunities to, um, use your expertise, uh, or use your interests to, to improve things. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I see, uh, with nonprofits is a lot is they, and, and lawyers too, is they don't even know what they need because they're used to doing things in a certain way and they don't even know what's possible or how things could be done differently uh, with technology in particular, but just general could be just workflows too. Um, and this is where the whole should lawyers learn to code debate comes up for me. I think, I think everybody should know a little bit about coding. You don't have to become amazing at it or, you know, build sort of production ready software. But if you know a little bit, you'll get a little bit of that problem solving mindset uh, and you'll have a better understanding of what's possible. And then you can go from there and actually build it with specialists. And we've, we've mentioned it a few times, but um, but different people have some different ideas about it. Um, I, and I, I totally agree. I, I think more people should have a basic understanding of what coding is, even if they never go further with it, just because once you sort of, once it's, it's like peeking through the keyhole and you, you start to understand how the internet works and how your computer works. And it all starts making a little bit more sense once you have just a little bit of knowledge about what it is. So what's your recommendation? What do you tell people who want to just get a little bit of exposure to it and, and learn just a little bit about coding? I think you're in really, uh, it's a good time to do that. There's a lot of really good free and very accessible, um, resources out there now. One is code Academy where you can uh, do a self-paced, uh, course, uh, that's not particularly hard and they explain everything to you. Um, you've got Google at your fingertips. You can just, if you don't know how something works, you just type in a few words and, and just dig around. Um, so it's, it's really kind of the golden age for teaching yourself how to code, I think. Fantastic. So we have mentioned a lot of links today and I'm going to be adding them all to the show notes. So if you didn't get a chance to write something down, um, and we didn't mention a lot of the URLs, just, um, visit lawyerist and I will have all of the links in the show notes. Ansel, thanks so much for being with us today and for chatting about technology and what you do and introducing us to some new tools and tips. Thanks, Sam. (laughs) 
Make sure to catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit lawyerist.com slash podcast or legaltalknetwork.com. You can subscribe via iTunes or anywhere podcasts are found. Both Lawyerist and the Legal Talk Network can be found on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And you can download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play or iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said during this podcast is legal advice.